Let's start off with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that we will not only hear your word now, but be able to apply it with our lives as you speak to our heart. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity, and we know that the gospel is great news of a great future. We pray that your word will help us to love you more dearly and to see you more clearly as you reveal yourself more to us and continually work in our hearts, building us up to be more like Christ Jesus over the next few minutes together. Amen. Let me start off by asking you, what sort of things give you comfort and security in life? I'm sure that there are many different things which, gives us, which give us a sense of satisfaction and assurance when required. Take, for example, one of the things which people find much comfort and security in. That is the humble smoke detector. I don't know if you've seen the ads around Sydney which, sort, which say, smoke detectors save lives. Lately, the ad campaign has been changed a bit and the marketing department have realised that they've had to add a bit more. It says, smoke detectors saves lives, full stop, and property. <laughs> what a great afterthought. <laughs> Obviously, saving lives wasn't getting the point across, but saving property surely will. I guess when people are threatened with losing their property, their security and comfort, then it becomes personal. Because saving the plasma TV, the computer or the, um, the Xbox is more important than grandma or the dog. <laughs> because originally I thought smoke detectors were only used to let me know when my wife had burnt the dinner again. <laughs> what things give you comfort when you need them the most? When you've just failed an exam or had a car accident? Maybe when your parents got divorced or when you were hospitalised, when you heard about the death of a loved one, when your friend commits suicide, or your friend, you hear of your friend's baby born with a life-threatening illness. What things give you comfort? Do you turn to God when searching for comfort? If so, how do you find comfort in him? Often people search for false comfort in all the wrong places. Consolation is easily found in property and material possessions, or maybe things like flowers or drugs, alcohol, caffeine or painkillers. But where does God fit into it all? Surely security can be found in a church, because that's, that's where God dwells. Or surely comfort can be found through doing good things, because we all know that it pleases God and makes him happy. Well, let's see what the Bible says about it tonight. The people that Stephen was addressing here in Acts had, a, had faith based on the laws of Moses. They had faith based on the temple and the land, things that weren't really relevant to what Jesus taught. Instead, they were really a distraction and a diversion away from the gospel. The law and the temple were sacred to the Jews and they couldn't possibly live without them because that is where they found much comfort. We've already seen in the first five chapters of Acts many great things happening. And tonight, the focus is taken away from Peter and the apostles, and it begins and ends with a great man called Stephen. The early church has seen much growth in numbers, and having a large gathering of people 
can easily turn into a logistical nightmare. And that's what we see here at the beginning of chapter 6. You never seem to be able to please everyone. And we are told that the Greek-speaking Jews were complaining about the Hebrew-speaking Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food. But the tension among these two groups of people catches the attention of the apostles. It's a learning experience here, both for the apostles and the church. The apostles' solution was, this, was um, to appoint seven Greek-speaking disciples. They were chosen men described as full of the spirit and wisdom. The job of the apostles wasn't to be sidetracked with giving up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Their job description didn't include doing admin or paperwork or going to boardroom meetings. Instead, the, their job was to put the preaching and teaching of God first before anything else. Their main focus was to give their attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. It meant that the church could continue to grow and concentrate on the more important issues that needed dealing with and not distracted with smaller issues that would take them away from the preaching of the gospel message. And as a result of choosing these disciples, it says, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests even became obedient to the faith. In choosing these seven, it's taken much pressure off the apostles and it sees the church equipped for ministry and service. It is here that we are introduced to Stephen. He is one of these seven appointed disciples and he seems to be the one who takes the spotlight. The description we are, we are given of him shows that he is more than qualified for the job ahead of him. It tells us that he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. It says others could not withstand the, the wisdom and the spirit in which he spoke in. And Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power, doing many wonders and miracles among the people. Stephen knew his job description well. He knew what to do because he was secure in the Holy Spirit. And because Stephen was so confident in his preaching, it also meant that he brought great opposition amongst him, against him. In preaching the truth, Stephen had made many enemies. Look at verse 8 with me of chapter 6. It says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs amongst the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen. But Stephen kept preaching the message of the gospel, resulting in, a, in, a, in an effective ministry. But it was only successful because the gospel that Stephen preached, it was not his own, but it was the gospel of Christ. And although the opposition to Stephen argued with him and attempted to silence him and stop him from doing these great things that he was doing for God, they could not. Because we are told they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. So they switched straight to plan B. That is, they fabricated a whole lot of false witnesses to stir up the crowd so that they could have Stephen seized and brought before the Sanhedrin. The charge starting from verse 11 says, 
We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. How dare this man come here and preach that this Jesus of Nazareth will come and destroy our temple and also tell us that the laws of our father Moses will be no more. These are the charges that Stephen here is being accused of. One against Moses and the law and another against the temple. Stephen is brought to trial in front of the Sanhedrin. The prosecutors only needed to ask one question to see what Stephen had to say for himself. Are these charges true? And if Stephen answered with a confident no, then this passage would have been much shorter. But when you are defending the gospel, which becomes your purpose in life, when you identify with it and you understand it, then you rejoice in it and you want to advance it as far as you can possibly take it. And so Stephen begins his marathon speech. But it's not necessarily a speech given so that Stephen can be acquitted of those charges against him. Rather, Stephen's speech is addressed and aimed at the gospel. His speech is really a protection of Christianity and of Christ. He too indicates that he is a person who believes in God and Moses. Stephen knows and understands the significance of the law in the temple. But Stephen grabs the council's attention and says to them, brothers, brothers and fathers, hear me out. Listen to me, listen to what I have to say. And Stephen started speaking as one filled with the Holy Spirit and presents a defence that will show that, that, that salvation in God is not all to do with the law. Salvation in God is not all to do with the temple. It is to do with Jesus Christ. And so we start speaking about the Jews' favourite subject, that is, themselves and their history. The Jews just loved it when you spoke about Moses and Abraham and David and all those other people, because this was where their comfort lied. But in saying all this, Stephen points it back to Jesus, saying that you have to come to God through Jesus and not the law. You have to come to God through Jesus and not the temple. You have to find your security in Jesus. Because the law or the land has never brought Israel into a relationship with God. It has only been accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. Stephen begins taking them through the Old Testament and the first person that Stephen focuses on is Abraham. You see, God appeared to Abraham in a place called Mesopotamia. That was a foreign land. Abraham was told to leave his family, his people and his country and to go to this land that God will show him. Even though Abraham was told that he himself would have no inheritance there, God relocates Abraham to this unfamiliar place where a holy nation will be established through him. In chapter 7, verse 2, it says, 
The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land, where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. The contract for the Israelites has now been established, even though Abraham would not live to see it happen. And it goes on to say that they would spend 400 years in Egypt as slaves. For God had their future all planned out, even though there was no land in their name that they could call their own. They will eventually come away from slavery and worship God in the land that is promised to them. Look at verse 6. It says, God spoke to him in this way, Your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Even through the lives of Isaac, Jacob and Joseph, God maintains his control and presence amongst his people within this foreign land. Jacob and his sons end up in Egypt, but God was still with them. It says from verse 9, Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. The land was yet to be inherited. Still God's presence was strong amongst his people. God was accomplishing his purposes, despite that there was no real land, no security. God was making himself known and comforting his people in presenting a picture of greater things to come. Well, so far there's no, there has been no real indication that the Israelites were, were moving towards the possession of the land. Yet God had been with them the entire time. But now Moses comes into the picture and the promise of the land becomes more of a reality. And we see that Moses is also born in a foreign land. He is born in Egypt. Pharaoh's daughter took him in and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, it was in the desert near Mount Sinai. Moses was in the middle of the desert, in the presence of God. And where Moses was standing was holy ground as well. Look at verse 31. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. You see, God's blessings were not dependent on the land. Wandering through the desert for 40 years did not see God taking a vacation until they entered the land. 
God was continually fulfilling his covenantal promise and providing for Moses and the Israelites throughout this whole time. God was their only comfort in the desert and the time of not knowing when when the land would come um, into their possession. But Stephen points out, with Moses too, it wasn't all to do with the land. He was the prophet that the Lord's blessed rejected. Moses was chosen by God to free his people from Pharaoh's power, performing, performing many miraculous signs and wonders. Yet Moses was rejected by his own people, and the refusal of Moses' leadership showed through in Israel's disobedience and idolatry. Look, at, look with me at verse 35. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler, in, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And continues on in verse 39. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead they rejected him and in their hearts turned back, turned back to Egypt. And they told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honour of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. Stephen is sort of saying here, you think by building this magnificent temple you have tamed God. You think that you have contained God and made him into your own image. All along you have disobeyed God and moulded him into the shape that you wanted to suit your needs. No wonder you're so comfortable and secure in your faith. All along, Israel had never obeyed Moses. The laws of Moses never brought Israel into a relationship with God. All they ever did was complain and whinge the whole time they were with Moses. And following the law only made them end up in exile. Read with me halfway through verse 42. This agrees that what is is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings forty years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Can you see how Stephen's speech is reflecting upon those who are accusing him. Maybe the council here are likened to a church pew. The longer you stay there, the more uncomfortable it gets. I don't think that there was any doubt that Stephen, or that the people in the Sanhedrin who were listening to Stephen knew that they too were being accused of not obeying the laws of Moses and that they were rejecting him. They would have started feeling uncomfortable and insecure by Stephen's speech. Even Moses said that God will send a prophet like me from your own people. Stephen knew that Jesus was the prophet that Moses was talking about. But just as they had rejected Moses, they have also rejected Jesus. They do not comprehend or acknowledge that Jesus was sent from God, that he was God's son, the Messiah. 
and that Jesus died on the cross and was raised again to life in splendour and majesty. Stephen comes back to the issue of the temple, saying that the tabernacle was given to them by God. It was God's way of telling the Israelites, Look, I will instruct you on how to worship me, not the other way around. God is the one who directs his people. Look at verse 44. It says, Our, father, our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Having re received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took, it, took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favour and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. It was the tabernacle that represented God's presence and security amongst the Israelites. Yet it was moved from place to place around in the desert. It was there in the promised land and provided much comfort because they knew that God's presence was with them. And even when the temple was built, on, built later on in Solomon's time, it would have been hard to imagine that God was only limited to the temple. But the lack of the temple did not interfere with God's blessings or presence amongst the Israelites. In fact, in God's message to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 5, it says, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? You see, the temple didn't represent a fixed address for God. God had survived quite well without the need of a permanent structure, and God showed that he was fully capable of working out his promises and purposes without a temple. Stephen spoke of the temple with great respect, yet Stephen quotes from Isaiah and says that God cannot be contained to the temple. Read with me in, in verse 48. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? says the Lord. Or well, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Even though God had a temple now, a place where his presence could dwell in, it was not necessary. Just because you have a grandstand named after you doesn't mean that you have to fill it with your presence. Or just because you have a street named after you doesn't mean you have to go and live in it. Comfort and security isn't found in a man-made structure. God's resting place sees the earth as its footstool. With all this said and done, Stephen lets rip at the religious leaders and so-called followers of the law. Stephen doesn't beat around the bush anymore. He gets straight to the point. And he doesn't try to um, act politely to please the officials with gentle words of rebuke. Instead, he's cut straight to the heart of the matter and challenges their thoughts of comfort and security. He gives it to them in verse 51, where he says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. 
Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Well, imagine telling a Jew that he was uncircumcised. It was an absolute insult. Stephen was saying to them that they belonged to the Lord in tradition, but not in heart. Stephen is desperately trying to conclude in saying that the temple is not important now because Jesus has come and renewed our relationship with God without having the dependence of a structure. Stephen is saying that the temple doesn't really matter now. The laws of Moses don't really matter now. There is no need to rely on it because of Jesus' death and resurrection. That is where real security and comfort is to be found. It is found in Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. Jesus had a healthy regard for the law and respected the temple, but it wasn't the focus of salvation. Worship, sacrifice and fellowship happened wherever God put his name. Israel's search for a saviour or a messianic king was not found through the patriarchs or through Moses or David, and certainly not in the temple. The sad thing is that this world doesn't recognise Jesus as king. People will always continue following the wrong kingdom. Jesus fulfilled all that Jerusalem stood for, the whole law and the whole place of worship. Israel's mission has been fulfilled through the cross. It was the beginning of a new community, a new creation, a new covenant. God is not bound to any culture. God is free to reside anywhere he pleases because the Most High does not live in houses made by men. Because Stephen is telling these people, look, if you want to lock God into your culture, into the temple, if that is what really matters to you, and you think that God can only be found in certain places and laws, and your customs can't be changed, if you won't listen to the message of the gospel of Jesus, then you are doomed. God can't be contained in just one place, living only in the temple. God wandered around with his people. He wasn't restricted by human standards. God isn't just found or worshipped at a church each Sunday. Those who measured God by the standards of their own nature are mistaken. And in saying all this, Stephen had infuriated the council so much that their emotions of anger, hatred and rage, that they cast him out. Look at verse 54 with me. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Stephen was on a roll. There was no stopping him once he was full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen looks up and he sees the glory of God and Jesus there beside him. 
Stephen describes out loud what he sees. It's like, look, I can see the man who you thought you killed and he's in heaven. The man who you put to death on the cross is now standing in heaven next to his father. That is your Lord. Jesus was with Stephen right till the very end. Through the events of Stephen's ministry and defence of Jesus, it places death into perspective, but it also places life into perspective. Knowing that our salvation isn't bound by worshipping or in a building or following a set of rules, our confidence in salvation is shown by what matters in our life, in our actions, our methods and our motivation in Christ. The basis of why it matters is because we are convicted and transformed once we understand what Jesus did on the cross for us. Stephen's death was brought about because he grasped and proclaimed the gospel and the, in the significance and meaning of it. He placed his body and soul on the line for the sake of Christ. He suffered persecution, even to the point of death, for the sake of being faithful to the gospel, because Stephen was secure and comforted where his faith was. Stephen accepted his death. He committed his spirit to Christ. As God's followers, um, no compromise is ever possible. There is only ever God's way or no way. We see how Stephen prayed to God in his final seconds on earth, just as Jesus prayed when he was hanging on the cross. In verse 59, it says, While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. All throughout the Old Testament, we see a sinful generation going from bad to worse. But only when we arrive at the cross of Jesus do we see man performing at his worst. For the one who made the world had come into the world, but the world did not know him. He was rejected, and time after time, his enemies wanted him dead, although no fault could be found in him. How do you choose between the good things in life and the best things in life? Is your life full of goals and ambitions? Because how you serve God through your life shows the priority of where your heart is. The slogan should be, Jesus saves lives, full stop. Nothing else needs to be added, just Jesus saves lives. The ministry of God's word must feed into all other ministries and every part of our lives. You see, these accusers of Stephen saw the temple and the law as their means to salvation and a means to being close to God. Be careful not to repeat the error that Stephen addressed here in the Sanhedrin and embrace Jesus with all your heart and soul, concentrating on prayer and ministry of the word. And once we grasp the relevance of the cross and what Jesus accomplished by dying on it, then we can be assured of where true security and comfort lies as well. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you will help us to reveal your glory in each of our lives. We pray for an authenticity in what we believe and how we live our lives for you. 
Lord, please use our lives for the service of the gospel and lead us into lives of prayer and action through what we've just learned about you tonight. Please grant us comfort in knowing that your purposes were fulfilled through Christ and are still being fulfilled through each of us. We pray that people will recognise the truth and come to know you. In Jesus' name, Amen.